so today we're going to be taking what feels like just a wrong turn as we hear uh, this passage. So we're, at this point we're long past Jesus' birth and we catch up with John the Baptist who is a distant cousin of Jesus's. And he is preparing the way for Jesus to enter into his ministry. And he's bringing it out, man. He is uh, calling it down in pretty strong ways. This is how it goes according to the Gospel of Matthew. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. The prophet Isaiah was speaking about John when he said, he is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist. I almost wore my coarse camel hair coat, but doggone it, it was in the cleaners and I just couldn't get it back in time. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey, because who wouldn't? And people from Jerusalem and from all of Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. Now just a little quick text note here. John is a spectacle, right? He is dressed in a very peculiar way. This is not normal, right? Uh, this is weird clothing on purpose. He's not trying to be a showman, but he's trying to make a statement. And the statement he's trying to say is, I'm the John, I'm the Elijah figure you've been waiting for. This prophet that is going to foretell the coming of the anointed one, that's me. Right down to, you know, the, the camel-haired coat and eating locusts and wild honey. So everybody who heard about John and what he looked like and what he was doing is like, could it really be? Is this, are we in that era of time where this could really be happening? So of course he drew a crowd and he was a powerful speaker. But when he saw Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. Now if you're new to this, Pharisees and Sadducees were the ruling class of all things Judaism. And they were very learned, usually wealthy, and usually lorded it over everybody else. So they were there because they heard about this spectacle called John the Baptist. But instead of honoring them, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed. <laughs> what a way to win some friends that day, isn't it? You brood of snakes, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater, that I'm not worthy even to be a slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. Oops. Where do I go here? This does not sound like our warm hug Jesus, does it? I mean, what in the world? How, how is that? Did John, 
I missed the memo about <laughs> how nice Jesus was going to be because he makes it look like Jesus is going to be like the biggest jerky TV preacher you can imagine that's just condemning people and yelling at people and doing the whole turn or burn thing to try to get people to, to scare people into the loving arms of God somehow. That's what it sounds like, a hellfire brimstone kind of preacher. How is that aligned at all with what Jesus is doing? Well, actually, there are some pretty cool things here if we give it a little bit of time and recognize some stuff that's worth looking at. We're going to challenge a thing here in a moment, which actually Jesus challenges himself. But we're talking about chaff and wheat and wondering if that has anything to do with a Merry Christmas. And I want to talk about what this metaphor is about. Now, I did not grow up in the Napa Valley where really the only thing that grows is, is grapes <laughs> for wine. I grew up in Kansas where we have a different crop altogether, and that crop is wheat. And it's mixed now. Um, you got some corn and you've got your beans, but back in my day, it was wheat as far as you could go. And wheat's actually pretty cool. If, you're ever, if you ever have to drive through that, that part of the world, <laughs> uh, particularly, actually, I'll give a little nod to Nebraska, even more than Kansas, because you, you go down I-80, and or 70 if you're in Kansas, and if you're in the middle of wheat country, and the wind is blowing, which it almost always does, it's almost like an ocean of wheat. And the waves come and go. It's really, it's really beautiful, it really. So I know a little about wheat, and it was all around me uh, when I grew up. Well, wheat, kind of like you can see depicted in here, it has a husk that protects the actual grain. The grain is what we make our bread from. The husk we don't want anything to do with. And so in ancient times when they would gather uh, the wheat, uh, they would have a threshing floor and they would have a winnowing fork. And the winnowing fork, they would, if it was dry enough and it was ready to be harvested and ready for that husk to come off and get rid of the chaff, they would just take the, the fork and they'd kind of throw it up in the air like this. Kind of like if you ever have a popcorn popper and you know there's some kernels in there that haven't popped and you shake the thing a little bit, you know the kernel is going go to the, go to the bottom, bottom of the pan. It's the same idea with this. They know that the grain is going to fall to the threshing floor where they can then harvest it. And the chaff is just going to blow away because it's lighter. This is the image that you have. is trying to get at the grain and get rid of the chaff. That's the picture. And the target of this particular metaphor, actually it's to a lot of people, but the target really is everybody. It's not just to the leaders of Judaism. It's also to the regular old Jewish everyday people. And it's also to non-Jewish people. And my blog today, which will uh, drop at noon, you can go and read the, the commentary yourself. Uh, but this particular commentary uh, reminded me that um, there's a strong case to be made that baptism at this time in history was mainly uh, for non-Jewish people uh, as a way to say, as they're converting into Judaism, I am literally all in, thus the immersion. You're fully choosing to be immersed in this new way of thinking called Judaism. And so you had this nod that's happening right in the midst of John's ministry. While he seems to be saying hellfire brimstone kind of stuff, at the same time he's being radically inclusive because he's welcoming all people to hear his message 
and be baptized. Now, you might hear the phrase, repent and turn from your sins. Well, really, that has very much to do with this whole wheat and chaff thing. Repent of your sins uh, simply means, repent literally means to turn around. Uh, it means to turn in a different direction. And what John is saying is, if, if this way is leading to hardship, take a turn. Turn in a different way. And that sin thing, um, that, you know, we kind of have boiled that down in some difficult interpretations. But this is essentially what it means. And you've heard me say this before, that sin is defined as the culpable disturbance of shalom. Just rolls off the tongue. A culpable disturbance of shalom. And it means that the shalom that is possible in our life, the peace of God which is possible for us, the wholeness, the healing, all of that, and the word of shalom means that at its greatest depth. It's doing things that are disturbing that, that are getting in the way of that kind of deep peace. And so for the Gentile people, as well as the ordinary Jewish people, it was, it was really an invitation. And the invitation to turn and repent and to experience grace, we got to hear it from the other angle. If you are a person who you feel like God can't stand you, <laughs> and you're in big trouble, and you're just little old you, you have no sway with God, you don't have any way of convincing God, and now you hear this guy who certainly looks like he's from God, and he's saying things that sound like God, and he's saying to you, repent and be baptized, and you're good. Do you understand what a good news gift that is to them? And he's saying it to everyone. This is, a, even though it sounds so harsh to us, it's actually this incredible invitation to say, you can begin again. You don't have to live in fear. There's time to turn around, and that time is now. Because something good's about to happen, and you're not going to want to miss it. So get out of your hiding. Uh, this is now. And then you have this issue uh, with the Jewish leadership. The Jewish leadership, uh, they didn't think they had any chaff in their life. The Gentiles and the Jewish people who were coming to hear John and flocking to him, they were well aware that they had chaff, they had hus that they wanted to get rid of, that they were welcoming the winnowing fork. And when they hear this imagery of uh, separating the wheat from the chaff, this is another mistake we make with this text, it's not separating people. It's not saying, well, Liz, you made the wheat cut, but poor Lauren, you're the chaff. We all knew it. <laughs> there you go. So you go your separate ways. That's not the picture that we have here. The picture that John is giving us with here is that God wants to do a redemptive thing in all of us. He wants to get down to the true grain. We, uh, Thomas Merton would call this the, our true self. He wants to get rid of all the stuff that is really not about who we really are in the image of God, who we're made to be. For the Gentiles who are there, for the, for the regular old Jewish folk that are there, they're like, wow, not only am I welcome here, not only am I finding forgiveness here, but God is actually behind this whole redemptive thing. And like a winnowing fork is wanting to help get rid of the stuff I don't want anyway. And then when we hear that word about, you know, an unquenchable flame, you know, it's just going to keep burning up that chaff. Too often we jump to some sort of hellfire picture on that, but actually it's much better than that. This means that the chaff in my life, the junk that's in the way for me and for you, means it's going to be burned up. Now, in a very final way, whatever happens after we die, and I think it'll be good news for us, 
the Apostle Paul gives us one image of that where all the chaff just gets burned off and we're left with the gemstones of who we are. I really like that image. I find it very hopeful because I know I carry around chaff right now, some of which I know about and I'm working on, you know, and, and have to manage the rest of my life because that's just what it is to be human beings. We're made a certain way. We're born into a particular context to see the world in a particular way. And it, it holds us back in ways that some ways we do know and know to manage and work on. And some ways we're completely blind to and oblivious. I'm looking forward to that day when all the chaff is removed. And it's just whatever I am in the face of God. That is going to be so liberating. So this is not a picture of judgment like, ooh, I'm going to get singed here. This is a picture of healing. And what John is saying is that you don't have to wait until you die. That this can happen right now to invite God's presence into our life and start doing this work of winnowing the chaff away from the wheat, of getting rid of the stuff that really isn't reflective of who we really are made to be and be that person we can be. Well, the Jewish leaders didn't know they had any chaff. And they especially didn't like to be called out on it when they did. That's what led to Jesus getting killed. And it ended up leading to John's death, in fact, because John called out a political leader right there in his area, called him out for some things. And that didn't make him real popular uh, with that governor. <laughs> and it eventually led to his own imprisonment. Uh, so the Jewish leaders needed to hear, and we in our time and era need to hear this too, uh, that it's not about lip service. The whole idea of faith is not simply signing off on an orthodox statement of belief of whatever kind that we create. It's about a way of life. It's about living in freedom, about living in peace, being the people who we're called to be. That is the point. And so when John chastises the Pharisees and the Sadducees saying, produce fruit worthy of your faith, He's not saying you have to earn your way into heaven. That's, this is not a works theology. He's saying, you know, if you really live this thing, the fruit would be obvious. It would be all over the place. And of course, the reason uh, why we know this is true is because we saw it in the person of Jesus himself. And Jesus lived this incredibly faithful life, tied to God in ways that are still mysterious, but more than I've, I know of any person in history was connected to, the, to this one we call God and was able to do extraordinary things because the Spirit of God flowed through him in extraordinary ways. And there was fruit all over the place. The irony is, is that even John the baptizer, in all of his fervor, in all of his desire to see things happen and change in his world, he also got it a little bit wrong. So we can't let John totally off the hook. I've given you some tools to kind of soften things up for him today, but in the end, I think we can all agree, John's a little bit harsh. <laughs> His rhetoric is rough, and it still is kind of a turn or burn kind of a thing. It's a, guess what's coming, people? The judge almighty is coming, and he's coming after us, and he's going to judge us. You can be forgiven. It's all good. So today's the day, but it's still a rough idea, and it's a fairly violent rhetoric. Would you agree with that? And the reason it's a violent rhetoric is because John the Baptist lived in the first century and he was a Jewish man and there's no way you could have avoided that kind of rhetoric. 
He heard the zealots all around him who were constantly wanting to pick up arms, gather together uh, to take force to Rome and Jerusalem, take over Jerusalem and see what Rome could have, thinking that as soon as we take up arms, God is going to join us in the fight, and as God has done in the biblical past, he's going to do it again. We just have to have faith enough to, uh, and go for it, uh, turn our pruning shears into swords and our plows into, into uh, bows and arrows or whatever they do with those things, right? That's the idea. And there was a lot of call for that. And most likely that's what John was hoping for because that makes sense for John. He's looking like this Elijah-type prophet to kind of pave the way to get people all excited. Uh, he's got his own, you know, stadium filled with fans. <laughs> he's, he's riling up and getting excited about what is just around the corner. But the funny thing is about John is that he also missed it. So much so that some time later, we're not exactly sure how long a time passed, not that long, John got arrested uh, because he called out the governor. Uh, and he's in prison, not a lovely place, but his disciples are coming and giving reports to him about what's going on. This is where we catch up to him in Matthew chapter 11. When Jesus had finished giving these instructions to his 12 disciples, he went out to teach and preach in the towns throughout the region. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah, Jesus, and Messiah means anointed one, was doing. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah, the anointed one we've been expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? <laughs> Let's just take a pause and think about the meaning of that question. Why would there be any doubt in John the Baptist's mind if Jesus was actually the anointed one or not? Wasn't it John that said, the one who's coming after me is it? Wasn't it John in a different gospel as Jesus is coming to be baptized says, I am not worthy to tie your sandals. I'm not worthy to baptize you. It seems to me John was crystal clear at the very beginning about who Jesus was. Without doubt, why in the world is he confused now? Well, the reason he's confused now is because Jesus didn't act like John. Word got back to John that he wasn't wearing the cool camel hair robe. <laughs> he wasn't eating locusts and wild honey with a cool leather belt. John had it all worked out in his head. He thought they were going to be twinsies. You know, he even got his own jacket just so they could look together, look the part together and go out in the world. But that's not at all what happened. Jesus instead came with a different message and a different presentation. He didn't wear the weird clothes. Uh, he didn't abstain uh, from all the foods that John chose to abstain from. In fact, Jesus looked pretty normal. His favorite title, by the way, was Son of Man, not Son of God. And Son of Man, which was just a simple way of saying every man, Jesus wanted to reflect everybody and considered himself one of everybody. And he dressed the part, dressed more like this than a robe or whatever priestly gown or whatever prophets are supposed to wear. And he didn't limit his diet. Uh, he was known, I think it shows up in the next uh, passage here, but uh, he was known for 
going to social engagements, heading to cocktail hour with some friends on occasion, drinking responsibly, I'm sure, uh, but feasting, having a glass of wine now and then, uh, that was how he was doing his life. And so John the Baptist is hearing that, and he's thinking, that does not sound like a good Baptist at all. <laughs> we from the Baptist tradition would agree. So Jesus, understanding what's going on, he sends report back to the boys. Jesus told them, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Maybe this is a Merry Christmas thing after all. And I just mentioned here to get you thinking that the God that works so powerfully through Jesus is one that comes to help us shine, to help the best part of us come forth through healing body, mind, and soul toward new life. And my question for us is, in light of those who've come before us and gotten it right and gotten it not so right, how will we choose to participate in the winnowing? How will we choose to participate in the winnowing in response to what is still the good news. John could still be on a river, on the Napa River here, proclaiming that the time is coming. Because the time is always coming. We live in a time where, actually, literally, uh, from almost the day that Jesus was no longer on the planet, the disciples started talking about, well, what's next? And they started believing that they were living in the end times that Jesus was going to come back any moment. My friends, if we take that logic, we've been living in the end times for 2,000 years. <laughs> and about every generation, literally every generation, there's new fervor that comes up about we're living in the end times. Like it's going to all come crashing down any second. And, and you see people use this rhetoric just in our group this past week. Uh, Candace shared, you know, she was reading some comments and, you know, an article in the, in the register and people were talking about, don't you know people were living in the end times? It could happen any second. Prepare the way of the Lord. That kind of talk that we have. But I want to tell you, in my experience uh, as a human being, uh, as a guy who's read a lot about history and different movements when people were sure it was the end times, and just with my own eyes after a few decades on the planet, anytime I come across somebody who is just super... Uh, full of fervor about we are now living in the end times and give me the, the case for all of that to be. You know what I've discovered with that? Is that they're generally really excited and really double down on their belief and make sure that they've signed off on their belief statement and crossed their fingers and, you know, all the way through. So they are crystal clear that they have said the right thing. But what I've also noticed is that most of their work then at that point is to circle the wagons, to get into their personal chamber and make sure that they ride this thing out until they hear the trumpet from heaven. It's more like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and less fruitful than we would hope. So... Are we living in the end times? Well, technically, ever since Jesus left the building, uh, yeah, we've been living in that end times. Do I think it's going to happen like, like some have imagined it? I, probably not. 
Again, it hasn't happened yet. I don't think God is that done with humanity yet or else this would already have happened. <laughs> we've, we've had enough errors along our history as human beings to certainly warrant God to say it's time for another do-over. And then we remember the myth of Noah and the ark. And we remember that God hung up God's bow. That's why we have rainbows after all. <laughs> Has nothing to do with science. It's just God's bow up there in the sky, people. But, but in terms of the myth, we understand what's being said. That God is saying, I'm not going to do that again. Because that's not who I am. Which means that when we hear this invitation to prepare the way, we need to take it in a different way. Not as circle the wagons, uh, but actually open our eyes. I love what you said about sacred seeing and sacred sightings, because you're right. The work of God is all around us all the time. The Spirit of God is flowing all around us, and it seems like we only really catch a glimpse of it when there's a crisis. So if somebody all of a sudden you know, has an emergency of some kind, and they notice that uh, people rise to the occasion to help them, and they say, God knew this was going to happen and got it already. Well, I don't know that God knew for sure that that critical thing was going to happen because I don't think God knows the future that way. There's some theological reasons for that. But what I am sure of is this, that the Spirit of God is constantly at work everywhere and that God is, in a very panentheistic way, is, is constantly present in every circumstance so that when something happens, the Spirit of God blows just a little bit more where it needs to. Maybe at just the right time when the right person is able to pay attention the way they need to to step into the flow of God, to, to trim their sails a little bit so that they can be a part of what God is trying to do, to be the one to come to the rescue, to be the one to pick up the phone, uh, to be the one to attend to the needs that are there like Liz described uh, earlier, to be the one to say we need to send care package to troops, to be the one to say we need to do something about homeless, to be the one to, to fill in the blank for whatever the need might be. This is the way God works in the world. We do not need to wait for a crisis but maybe what we can do is be willing to be uh, thrown up in the air a little bit by the winnowing fork to allow God to do God's thing in us. Now, I've never talked. Well, I was going to say I've never talked to a piece of wheat or a grain of wheat before. But I've talked to some really good bread before, which is kind of the same thing. <laughs> you are delicious. <laughs> I'm going to eat you now. <laughs> Sometimes it's just that good you can't help yourself. But my, my guess is that the grain is perfectly comfortable in the husk. That husk has protected it all of its life until that very moment when it's ready to be harvested. We don't really like the husk to be messed with because it's all we know. Sometimes our only identification is the husk and not what the husk is protecting. And so the idea of being thrown up into the air to allow God to do this thing, this act of repentance, this act of saying to God, I don't even know what I don't know. I can't even see what I can't see. So I'm trusting you as I allow you to throw me up into the air to upset my personal apple cart so that I can get to be me more fully. Usually we don't like it when this happens because it almost always happens from crisis. But over time, and if we're paying attention, we actually want it to happen. We actually look forward to the next time even though we're not going to like it initially because it's just after we get comfortable that we hear the fork coming in from the shed <laughs> to throw us up again.
oh, if only we could be so proactive with this. If only when we're just starting to nod off in our apathy, if we could say, God, wake me up, because I can feel myself nodding off, and I don't want to miss a thing that you're trying to do in the world. Bring the fork. Bring the fork because I know I'm missing it. I know I'm disturbing shalom somehow. I might not know how, but I know I'm doing it, so I need you to winnow me up a little bit so that more of me can break through. This is our invitation. This is the core that John was getting at. Filtered through his first century Judaic uh, apocalyptic fervor. And the message is still true today. We have an invitation to get ready for this Christmas. Filled with stories of people who allowed the winning, winnowing fork to do its work. Uh, Mother Mary said yes, completely upset her life. Joseph stayed married truly upset his life. The, the shepherds leave their fields on the hill, upsetting the apple cart and the flock and probably their bosses who had something to say the next day about that. Uh, the, the wise men uh, have the winnowing fork happen to them and they make this incredibly expensive journey that cost, to, cost them crazy amounts of money and months of time. That's the winnowing fork. And it's a good thing because we don't want the chaff. We don't want the husk. We want the grain of who we are. And it's available to us because that's who God is. Does that make sense? Then let us pray together. So God, thank you for this very, very good news. Even if it came out of the mouth of somebody who didn't quite fully get it, they got it enough for you to work with and people's lives began to be changed that day. People who didn't think that they had hope on the Jordan River because they were of the wrong religion found out they were welcome uh, to look at things differently. People who were in Judaism and the religion that John was in found out that forgiveness was possible even for them and they didn't have to go all the way to Jerusalem to get it. Even the religious leaders found out that there was hope for them too if they would just allow the winnowing fork to have its way in them. And even John himself, although it had to be a little humbling for him, found out that his good news, his version of the hope to come was just way too small for you. And thank God for that. So God, may we learn from the story, from the story of all the characters of this Christmas, may we know that good news really is coming to town. And the way to start experiencing that now is to trust the fork, to trust the winnowing, because it means the worst stuff of us that we want to get rid of, want to shed, you want to shed too. You want to help us shine to be who we were made to be. So God help us. To that end, we pray the prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
Thanks again for coming. I hope you had a great experience, and we will see you next week. All right.